Greetings listeners, this is Amelia of Solutions by Amelia and blogger ever at the Business of Nursing. I hope you guys are doing well. So this is a special episode. Right now it is April 2020. So it's been a month into lots of things changing, lots of new concerns and lots of new opportunities. Um, telehealth has picked up in a way I've in a pace that I've never thought I'd see um, happen so quickly. Um, But there's a lot of uncertainty. And I don't know about you, but I love certainty. Didn't realize how much I enjoy that until going through all of this. I love certainty. I love facts. I love knowing for sure, for sure what's going to happen next. And with lots of that not being in place, um, like lots of folks, I've, you know, kind of struggled with that. So what I do when I'm in a place of struggling or um, any sort of turmoil, I think of the words of um, Mr. Rogers, whose mom, I think, told him, like, when you're when bad things happen, look for the helpers. So I am have been keeping my eyes open for the helpers. And guess what? When you keep your eyes open for certain things, you see them. And this helper actually didn't as, like appear out of nowhere. Um, I first crossed paths with her in 2016. So for the past four years, we've been in touch. We've been on the phone. We've talked to one another, supported one another. And um, this uh, person is a doctor, Dr. Knighton, and she is a hand hygiene expert. Yes, there is such a thing. I had no idea until I crossed paths with her. And back then she was working on a device that would allow patients to keep their hands clean at the bedside. She was super passionate about it and um, and blah, blah, blah. So when all of this started to really happen and go down, I reached out to her a couple times to, well, even before this, I wanted her on the business of nursing for various reasons. But um, when all this really started happening, or I think early March, I reached out to her and our our, our our schedules just synced up just recently. So you'll hear our conversation and me and her, we can talk to, for hours about lots of different things. Our conversation can start off talking um, about one thing and then veer over into 20 different areas. So I tried hard <laughs> with this and I'm laughing at myself because I don't know if I was successful to try hard to keep it on one specific theme or topic. But what I can promise you is I will make mention of how you can reach out to her to continue a conversation. So whether that conversation is um, on LinkedIn or whether it's in a consulting capacity, um, I will put it in a way where you can reach out to her and continue to learn from her. Um, She's on Twitter. We will make mention of her Twitter handle. Please follow her feeds and check in and see what she's saying day to day. Um, It would make sense for you to do that right about now because she's plugged into so many resources and things. She's bringing lots of great information back to her social media feed for all. We can't be inside of her head. She's a genius. But what we can do is see what she's posting, see what she's listening to, um, take a look over at her followers, see who she's following for information. I highly suggest that you follow the folks that she's following. And um, yep, I will leave that at that. So again, we're all trying to learn how to navigate things that there isn't exactly a path or a guide to navigate. Um, however, there are people who are um, experts in the world um, who are great at what they do and they didn't become great um, a month ago 
They've been doing what they've been doing for some time. Um, I think her work goes back to 2007 is when she first started getting interested in this topic. And here we are in 2020. Right. So um, as always, I want to bring back to you people who are resources, folks that you may not have come across during your day to day, um, especially now that things are how they are with us all getting together at conferences. Um, I just want you to know about resources that are here for you to help you help with your programming, help with your initiatives and such. So with that, um, let's start the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Nursing. And this is a podcast where I capture stories of nurses who are doing interesting things. Um, they have either made interesting career pivots, they are they have a business, or they're doing um, unusual things or fantastic things or things that caught my eye in the community. And I want to bring um, these folks to you and also these conversations um, almost more importantly to you, um, because of what I do, I have conversations with lots of people who are doing um, great work in nursing beyond the bedside and at the bedside, but that what they're doing at the bedside or beyond is not necessarily coming to you because you're busy and you're working your full-time shifts, your 12-hour shifts, and at the end of the day, um, you might not have chance to um, to talk to these folks. So one of these um, people that I have with me today is Dr. Knighton. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. So um, I crossed paths with Dr. Knighton like some, and is that how you pronounce your last name? I'm sorry. I don't think I've... Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> that is That's it, Knighton. Uh, Knighton. Um, we crossed paths some years ago um, and um, over entrepreneurship and nursing and innovation, but today, why I wanted to have Dr. Knighton on was because of all that's going on with hand hygiene and um, COVID-19. And uh, for whatever reason, now all of a sudden, well, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, COVID-19, but for whatever reason, a lot of people seem to be interested in hand washing. And I didn't want to bring on an expert who just decided to get into hand washing like back, back in March. I wanted to interview um, somebody who wasn't new to this, they're true to this. And um, Dr. Knighton's work with hand hygiene goes back many years. So Dr. Knighton, can you um, just introduce yourself and tell us um, a little bit about your work? I'm going to ask you some more questions, but yeah, um, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, I am Dr. Shanina Knighton. I am a clinical nurse scientist and KL2 scholar at Case Western Reserve University. And I have a background in infection prevention and control. And so my infection prevention and control expertise um, started to bud um, around 2007 um, while in nursing school and has continued through this time now um, and has been a cornerstone of my research and my practice um, and many quality improvement initiatives that I've put forth, including policy. Awesome. 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 So back in 2007, um, you noticed something in nursing school and you didn't just let it go. Um, so here we are in 2020. Um, that work is a core part of your um, your professional. Well, it's a core part of your professional body of work, even down to creating policy. So what was that thing in 2007 that you first noticed? 
So I was a new mom and I had, I want to say my son was about one years old at that time. He might've been a little bit younger. And so I was in a clinical setting and nurses innately, every nurse are trained infection prevention and control wise, because just because a patient has high blood pressure, has diabetes, does not mean that they they, they don't have some sort of multi-drug resistant organism or something that may cause them to be in some sort of precaution, you know, contact precaution or something like that, droplet precaution. And so at that time, um, I really wanted to care for patients, but really wanted to also make sure that I was keeping my new family safe. And more importantly, um, I asked my nursing instructor, well, why is it that our hand hygiene is emphasized, but my patients are not able to clean their hands or not required to clean their hands? And so it's just something that just kept resonating with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and her rebuttal, I'm sorry, her rebuttal, by the way, was mm-hmm. there that our hand hygiene as healthcare workers is more important than patients' hand hygiene. And unfortunately, she wasn't um, out of the norm. This was something that I received as a response for many years following that. Wow. So you noticed the problem. Um, you saw that, um, you know, nursing, you know, we need to wash our hands, wash our hands. And the patients, what about the patients? Um, and let's not care about the patients. It's pretty much what I'm hearing that you heard. Like, we don't care about the patient's hand hygiene. Is that what you heard? Yes. Yes, that it was our sole um, responsibility to keep them safe and that us cleaning our hands would pretty much mitigate the problem of healthcare-associated infections or them getting um, contaminated with anything. And so that was the thought process or the theory behind patients not being as important as healthcare workers. Wow. Yeah. And that's and that's like absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's like saying that, you know, um, say we're taking care of a three-year-old and everything that three-year-olds could do. Um, as long as a mom washes her hands, a three-year-old doesn't have to learn hand washing is what um, you were pretty much told. Is that kind of accurate? I would say so. But um, I do want to say, oddly enough, and I know you're saying like, oh, wow, well, that's pretty weird. But if you have a nursing background and you get it, um, even physicians get it. But if you're talking to like, let's say an investor, someone like, you know, a lay person, if you are talking to sometimes nurses that have been trained that this is the best way to go, then yeah, you know, it, some get it and some don't. So I would say that there definitely are um, a mixture of opinions but definitely wasn't enough to sway it becoming a practice either before me or early on in my career by, you know, leadership. Mm-hmm. So you came across this, it, this issue, you, you saw something, you saw a pain, um, your nursing instructors, you know, kind of brushed it off, but you did not brush it off. Um, tell me about, um, I guess, tell me about your work that you're doing um, now. Um, I know that you can't break down everything that you've done in the past almost like 20 years. I'm not great with math, but um, tell me more about like the work that you decided to do because you based your the large part of your academic career on addressing this problem 
and you started your own business and you started consulting, you know, what, so you didn't decide to let that die. Um, that's great. But what are some of the things that you did to try to move this forward, this um, issue of patient hand hygiene forward? Gotcha. And so, and I will give like a brief crash course. So I had mentioned what happened in 2007. I had also had, you know, I transitioned into a nurse. So I was that novice nurse that was on the floor, um, just really starting to understand things for myself, going through, you know, a preceptor as well as then having my own independent patient load. And during that time, you know, and it's just fast forward, I was pregnant with my second child. And so we had H1N1 that was running rampant. And if anyone remembers during that time, um, pregnant women were likely to die or their child was likely to have birth defects if you received um, H1N1. So when the vaccine came out, it was emphasized that everyone should get this vaccine. And so even still, you know, I'm working in a hospital and people don't know this, but when nurses have to swab a patient and do any kind of influenza test similar to what's going on right now with these COVID-19 tests, we have to take this swab and push it all the way back into the nasal pharynx. And it's not a typical like swabbing of your nostrils. This thing goes all the way back. Um, similar thing if you were giving someone some sort of th uh, throat swab. So these people could cough in your face, they could sneeze in your face. So there was a lot of risk that was associated with that, similar to what it is now. It's just that then, you know, being scared of taking something home was more of a fear. But it was also the fact that these patients would cough, they would sneeze, they would do all of these things. And, you know, they didn't have proper resources around them to clean their hands. So I went from handing people hand sanitizer on a paper towel providing them with, you know, a wash basin that they will use one time for them to clean their hands, which can be costly if a hospital doesn't have that many resources. And then fast forward into me thinking that I could, you know, create a device um, in order to mitigate the problem. And so went through the pains of entrepreneurship just to discover that what my experience was, what the experience was with my colleagues was not necessarily the research that was out there, as well as investors didn't believe in it either. And so that spawned me to study the problem more. And I said, okay, well, is this a real thing? Or is this just my lived experience? And so that is what got me on the pathway of becoming a clinical neuroscientist. And just as you mentioned, I have stayed, I've pretty much stayed in this area my whole career. And so even if I'm on the floor working as a bedside nurse, patient hand hygiene, whether it's in the ED, anywhere has been a cornerstone of this work. And when I mentioned that it's now in a place of getting to policy, many don't know this, but nowhere in the United States do we have any laws that require hospitals, or long-term care facilities to provide patients with hand hygiene education. So the CDC does emphasize that patients should clean their hands, but hospitals or long-term care facilities are not required to print that information. And then you have World Health Organization that just empowers the patient by telling them to tell their providers to clean their hands. 
that's not sufficient for a patient that does not know their role in hand hygiene. And so my studies, even a recent one that I did within the past year, showed that patients think that the dispensers in the hospital and the sinks in the room are meant for healthcare workers, not for them. And so it follows the science that I've done prior to that and just saying that we know why patients have these germs on their hands and we know that they have poor practice. And it is because they're under the impression that their hand hygiene does not matter. And so the legislation that I am putting forth is just to target just that, and that's mandatory patient hand hygiene education in healthcare facilities. Wow. And the timing of this is absolutely amazing because, again, this is April 2020. And, um, and you know, there's a ton of attention going to the coronavirus, of course, and the numbers coming out regarding infections and deaths in long-term care facilities is, is tragic. Um, so tell me more about your thoughts on this. It's like, um, like, do you think, I mean, what do you think about the attention that's going you know, all what, well, I feel like all the world's attention is just on, I shouldn't say just because it's kind of huge, but um, I feel like all, all the world's attention is on, um, you know, of course, COVID-19 and how many people are dying and the frontline workers and them having enough supplies. What do you think is not necessarily getting the attention that it should? So that is a loaded question, but I think the first couple things that come to mind for me is the fallout of care or the unintended consequences because everything is being so unidirectionally focused on COVID-19, which means that, yes, there are still people that will have, you know, surgeries, emergency surgeries. And so ensuring that nothing is overlooked because we're not talking about a stressed healthcare worker that is fearful of getting COVID-19 and may make in human error. We're not talking about the people, you know, who've been told to stay home and as a result of staying home are staying home way too late now. And they're waiting way too late to when they're so symptomatic that by the time they go in, they have a higher prognosis dying. Um, we are also talking about healthcare workers, meaning that I've worked with veterans for over a decade now, and I have veterans in my family. The basic training or the boot camp that they have to go through prepares them mentally that they will be dying for the greater cause of our country. We have pretty much created our healthcare workers to be the military directly here and mentally expecting them to be prepared for that. And they have not undergone that proper training, especially because no one ever anticipates dying or not being able to get back home to their loved ones. And even prior to this, we already knew that while we are the most trusted profession, we are the most unhealthy profession. And so that is a concern. Um, secondly, I would also say that we've not only taken healthcare workers and turned them into what I would call and given them a crash course, I would say for being in the military overnight, we've done this with the public period and have given them a crash course on infection prevention. 
meaning that prior to this, only three to six percent of people were cleaning their hands correctly. Um, you and I both know that it takes years and lots of research studies in order for people to figure out, and this is a healthcare worker, how to manage hand hygiene, glove use, mask use, down and on and down and off of gowns properly, shoe wear, eyewear. There are a lot of things that go into that, that while these things are meant to be protective, if they are used incorrectly, then they increase the risk for infection. And so long story short, we had a public that modeled what healthcare was doing and started to take things into their own hands by getting personal protective equipment as far as masks and gloves. And I'm observing so much misuse. And so my work recently has been around educating the public on practical steps because right now, while everything is on COVID-19, you know, we do know that it may be affecting minorities more or it is affecting minorities more. But I think when we talk about the underlying issues of why that is, we're not addressing that. We're not addressing the fact that, that you know, what young people will call leaders, rappers, getting on TV saying that, you know, or getting on social media and saying, oh, well, COVID, COVID doesn't kill black people. What do you think that did when they were trying to put forth social me- social distancing measures? When you get people on there that says, oh, it's only old people. Oh, then you get Florida and you get people going outside and kind of hanging out. And so I think the bigger issue here than COVID-19 is the fact that even though I am a scientist, I put forth things that inform practice. We're watching a public fall apart by following incorrect media information. And so that's a big issue. Every time a study gets published, there may only be five people in that study, and it's making national news, and it's becoming a standard in people's minds, and there's not enough data to support that. So I do have a lot of controversy with the things that are shared because they are not shared completely. And for a public that is fearful right now, it's scary just to know that there isn't some sort of social responsibility that is happening that's making things more digestible for people. And so that is my concern right now. So, um, and this is a question that I've been asked and I want to ask you. So say there's somebody who's listening to this, that they're saying, okay, Dr. Nysons just told me that I shouldn't believe everything that I'm hearing, even if it is in a study. Um, She's saying that I should fact check um, what popular people say on social media. There's some rapper or influencer that says X, Y, Z. I should fact check that. Um, Where should they go for their information? What should they look at to fact check? Um, How do they know that um, and I know you can't break down research one on one like in the podcast, <laughs> but what are some um, and I things? Can't. Yeah. What are some things that they should look for to before they go and read it? Or it might be easier for you just to tell us like where, what sources do you have you found that's offering um, digestible um, and relevant and insightful and correct. Um, up-to-date healthcare content? Actually, I think that's my question. So what sources, like, do you recommend people take a look at? Um, who um, are you following that's offering digestible information? Um, yeah, tell me more about 
um, reputable sources for information. So that is a challenging question. So just in itself, because the thing is, is right now there is a rapid call for rapid sharing, meaning that the National Institutes of Health have opened up their site and to where if someone does publish something that could be meaningful and informative, they are posting it up on their site. The problem is, is everything is not digestible for a lay person to be able to read, unfortunately, and that is the problem. And so I have taken the initiative in understanding that and being able to create materials that are digestible. And so that has actually been in my wheelhouse recently. But if someone were to ask me, you know, well, what should I do at this very moment in order to find this information? When someone posts something, there should be a link inside of their article that is linking you back to the actual study. If you can't read anything else, I would suggest people to look how many people was tested. Meaning that if we're looking at a study and it's showing, oh, only five people were shown to have COVID-19 in their saliva, is five people really sufficient enough for us to be able to say, okay, this is why this should change or this information is very informative. When the airborne information came out about COVID-19 and the fact that it can live in air for up to three hours, in my opinion, what should have been included is whether or not the study was done inside or outside. So that's one. The other piece of that is, is we have completely ignored the heating, air conditioning, and cooling and ventilation systems and the impact that they have on bacteria, viruses, and fungus and their ability to float in the air. Hospitals have up-to-date machines or up-to-date ventilation to where the HVAC systems to where they have to address this, but an average location doesn't. So when a study was posted the other day that it wasn't even a study, it was an article that showed that nine people were sitting in a restaurant and the nine people ended up with COVID because of one person that was in there and they attributed it to the ventilation system. And so while people are looking at these studies and they're saying, oh, airborne means everyone should have masks, my concern is that I don't think that leadership is doing a good job about investigating the science and asking the right questions. And I know that this is challenging for them. However, there is a whole field of infection preventionists, about 15,000 strong, around the world. We have the mecca of it here, which is the association for professionals in infection control and epidemiology. That's APIC. And so APIC is located right here in the United States. They're headquartered in DC. Our work is centered around infection prevention and control. It's centered around surveillance. And I'm just surprised that I have not seen them in the media more, just as much as the CDC. I get it that the CDC you know, does stand for Centers for Disease Control. But what I must say is, is it's the fine detail that's missing. So, for example, they posted up laundered masks. Laundered masks does not have the same meaning to every person. So I have sensitive skin, and I know a lot of people have sensitive skin. So I can't launder my mask in the same Tide Pod that I would clean my clothes and put it on my face. 
I break out. And so people don't understand that, that these are things that we need to consider. When you say get a breathable fabric, that has a a different definition to someone that may not understand that. Information about what men should do when they have beards. Um, Making sure that people are not dry coating their masks. Like there are things that are missing when it comes to what if I have a breathing condition and an oxygen tank and, you know, I have my nasal cannula. Do I still wear a mask? How do I manage being able to clean that tube and in the same token? So I'm looking at this and my question is, is the people that are dying because of multiple chronic conditions, do they have the correct information? And my concern is that more information is being shared about the problem opposed to more information being shared about prevention. But this doesn't surprise me. This has been the fabric of our country is that we are so reactive instead of being proactive. And so my work is gone around lower income communities right now and just making sure that I can get them digestible information, not just some big long sheet and saying call here or not something that's getting ready to say, oh, well, hand hygiene is just important. No, it actually walks you through. If you're going to the grocery store, these are the things you should always have packed in your trunk. You always need a spray bottle um, of either peroxide, alcohol, you know, something in there that you'll be able to clean stuff with. You'll need two rolls of paper towels. This is just in case if you get somewhere, you're able to clean your hands and clean whatever it is you'll touch. So these are the things that are people don't know. And so then, okay, somebody may say, well, what do I do next? Okay, and then after that. So people need step-by-step information that is going to benefit them and show them how to make it through that process, opposed to being given everything at one time and saying, oh, figure it out. Wow. And so it is like, mm-hmm. it's a tough place in order to be able to get digestible information. But I would just say, make sure it's linked to something. Google it. Everything is accessible nowadays. You can Google studies on cloth mask use and see what you come up with. And if you're not finding a lot out there, but you're finding a lot on you know, infections related to surgical mask use, or you're finding guidelines around that, you have to realize that those guidelines still apply in the current climate with trying to prevent infections. Because even still, multi-drug resistant organisms or fungus is not left just because COVID-19 is here. And so a lot of those same practices still apply to this too. Hmm. So right now I have like so many things that I would like to hear you talk more about um and I don't want to make this like three hours so I am right now (laughs) so I'm right now I want to (laughs) tell people like exactly like where because I know that you said like recently with all this happening you've just started um producing information that's um that can be digested digestible. Um, Right now, I want to tell people to follow you on Twitter because you share lots of great information there. Um, there, Are there other places that people should follow you or um, how can people, you know, keep up to date who enjoy what they've heard so far from you? So I, thank you. I have, um, I am posting some of the things that I'm doing on Twitter. So One of the things that I posted recently was a webinar that I did um, for a church this past Monday for their church members as well as the community. And they had over 300 people chime in. 
and they posted the recording of the video up. And there are also some quick reference sheets or some tip sheets that are there that actually walk somebody through what you have to do if someone needs to come visit your home and talked about making sure that people call before they come and that you come up with a plan. Um, it talks about navigating healthcare visits. So I'm dreading go to the doctor, what, going to the doctor, what do I do now? And so just talking about calling before you go in, seeing if you can handle it over the phone. And if you can't, the steps and measures you should take when you get there. And so these are the practical things that I have, you know, and so that link is also put up there as well. But even in addition to that, if someone were to Google my name, which is S-H-A-N-I-N-A and last name K-N-I-G-H-T-O-N and click on the link news up under Google, you'll find some of the work that I've done there for ForbesCleveland.com and NewsWise. And inside of those articles, it actually talks about what to do when doing takeout, what to do when shopping, what to do when you receive packages. Um, there's news feeds on, you know, people being concerned, workers being concerned about going inside of homes. And so that information is there. And I've been using media as much as I can to get that information out. Just because I realize I cannot be everywhere at one time. And while I impacted my local community, um, I understand that there are other communities nationally that could too benefit from information similar or from similar information. Awesome. And you know, that makes my heart sing, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so for nurses who are listening to this, again, um, if you are hearing, if you're, as you're listening to this and you're thinking like, amen, <laughs> I agree with this. Um, I invite you to also consider how you will share and disseminate um, reliable, practical, evidence-based information to your communities, to your networks. Um, you know, this is a great time to consider um, how you will start to build your audience um, online mm -hmm. because, you know, you can be the resource or the influencer that people turn into, tune into when you start your live or where you start your, um, or you share something on Instagram. Um, and I feel like if enough of us nurses, and you mentioned a professional organization, um, were to start going live regularly and posting regularly, we can, I feel, it's a numbers thing, um, we can start to dampen out unreliable information. And I feel as though it's a, a moral, it's an ethical responsibility for those of us um, who know better and who are familiar with hand hygiene and familiar with PPE usage to share widely about correct use versus just posting memes or posting um, comments about people who are using it incorrectly. I mean, that's not helpful. You know, saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just saw this in the store. That's super not helpful. What would be more helpful is to say, you know what, this is a correct, this is what I saw in the store. Um, however, this is the correct way to use it. And um, here's a few articles that can better, that can also support you. Um, this one nurse, he made a great video. It was a rant video. <laughs> it was a rant video mm -hmm. about, you know, how he's sick of seeing people um, in stores with gloves, thinking that they're now immune to everything and just touching everything and cross-contamination. It was a great video mm -hmm. and it was a rant and it was seen thousands and thousands of times and shared hundreds. So um, nurses, if you're thinking about, you know, going viral <laughs> or something like that, um, 
there's just there's ways to go viral for all the wrong reasons. However, it is possible to go viral for the right reasons and share um, and get lots of great um, information shared widely. So, um, Dr. Knighton, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I will work on getting this edited and getting notes out and um, get these back to you to share, share, share. And um, I will be awesome. um, I will be doing the same in my um, network. So for for those who are thinking also, I want to say those are thinking, you know, wow, I just heard Dr. Knighton talk about how, um, you know, the folks in long term nursing facilities um, may not be aware of how important hand hygiene is for them and they're laying there in the bed and they don't know this information. And I have like my loved one, you know, I have my loved one in long-term nursing care facility and I'm worried about their health. Um, but Dr. Knighton said that maybe the word can get out um, to them that hand hygiene is important. What would you say to um, empower or what encouragement would you give to, I guess, the, um, the relatives or you know, the caregivers at home who have long loved ones in the hospital, who have loved ones in long-term care facilities. Because um, I, I don't want to talk about like changing administration right now, because that might be a harder Mm-mm. left. <laughs> You're like, no, no, no. no. Oh, that'd be a harder yeah. left. So and it's easier. Not, Go ahead. And a different topic, maybe. It's low, it's low hanging yeah. fruit. Like, yes. No, I get it. Yeah. But I would also, I would say that is, and I'm, and we know, like anyone knows that traditionally hand hygiene, you could tell someone to do it. And again, just as I mentioned, only three to 6% do it right. But something is better than nothing. And I just think people being able to understand that sometimes the mindset that simple does not work um, is kind of like engraved. But I think this is a time of understanding where less is more. So less meaning that yes, while we are talking about vaccines, while we are talking about testing kits, while we're talking about, oh, well, how do we minimize the symptoms? And we're talking about ventilators and preparing for people that's going to be sick. I'm super disappointed that we are not talking about preventative measures. Mom, make sure you're social distancing if you are in long-term care. You should have something to clean your hands at all times. If you have to go to a general area, make sure you wipe down the arms of the chair before you sit down. Make sure when your nurse comes in that, or your physical therapist, that if they have a walker or something that they're bringing with them, they wipe that down before they start giving me therapy with it. And so my point is, is that, again, infection prevention and control, which is something that Americans are not trained on. Epidemiologists are trained to study the statistics around the diseases. They are not studied to they are not trained to study infection prevention and control. Same thing with some people in public health. This stuff takes a practice. So when we're looking at some of these practices that are coming from the top down and understanding we cannot change leadership and people are listening to certain leadership, again, it just goes to show that organizations such as APIC, which do have majority nurses, continue to be ignored. And that's just the point that I'm trying to make. And it's, it's almost like even now how I do feel like as a nursing profession, we know that it's a 2020 year of the nurse, but it's interesting that we're just now getting attention after what is it? Um, is it 15 years now, the most trusted profession or something like that? And long something story like short, we've had that title. Yeah, we've had that title for quite some time. 
And it's now, you know, I feel that the value of nursing is being understood. But I think with that being said, not only just the value of us, us being able to be understood at the bedside, but, you know, our social media leaders, our clinical nurse scientists, our practice leaders, you know, that are leading clinical practice, you know, there are a lot of nurses that are doing a lot of different things. And I just don't think that that value is appreciated. And so when I think about leadership, the best thing that leadership could do would be to elevate their nurses because we would know how to take care of patients best. And not to say that MDs don't, but when I speak about patient-centered care and having to do things for patients, we understand what that care trajectory looks like of being with someone's loved one even when they can't during this time. So one last question. So say someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, wow, um, Dr. Rankin just shared a lot of information, a great information. Um, she suggested, um, you know, producing that we produce um, materials that are easy to read and easy to follow for our patients um, who are in long-term care facilities and in hospitals. And um, we understand that, you know, if more patients um, felt empowered to use the sink and felt more empowered to use the sanitizer things, or maybe if something was closer to the patient so that they could reach over and grab um, something to sanitize their hands, um, but we don't know how to put this program together. We don't have the resources to do that. Do you offer consulting? I do. You do? I do. Okay. Um, yes. How can people and, get in touch um, with you? Go ahead. So I would say um, even my direct messaging through Twitter is accessible. I'm also accessible through LinkedIn. Okay. And I have, um, again, and it's not to sound crazy, but if someone were to, you know, Google me, even my uh, university information shows up. And so they could also, too, get in contact with me there. Okay, awesome. And I will go grab those links and have them close by to this. Um, yep, I will go grab those links and have them close by. And so, yep, so I encourage you, if anyone felt that something was interesting and helpful and they're considering um, brainstorming a project or starting a program or they recently got funding and they're like, you know what, we were thinking about, you know, hiring, a, um, figuring out if we can do this in-house, but I think I just found an easy button with Dr. Knighton. Um, I do invite you to reach out to her. And I, like I said, I'll have her links close by. So um, Dr. Knighton, thank you so, so much for um, sharing your wisdom and your expertise and your resources. And um, I look personally look forward to staying in touch and catching up with you some more. Awesome. And just one more thing um, that I do want to kind of caution with making the materials. I don't think anyone in the world is, and I'm not going to say anyone, but most people are not trying to harm others. They really are trying to help. And so even when we look at, let's say, the sociologists or the economists that get on TV and are speaking what they believe to be their truth, I just want to say that in creating materials or going out and doing things for patients, there are things that you may not understand, you know, and you may think it's best practice, but it's something that maybe someone else studied. And what is simple may not necessarily be so simple. So I'm saying that to say that if someone decided to go off and print their own materials or do their own work, I would encourage them to absolutely make sure that they're doing their homework so that there are no liability issues. Because again, while we want to share and get information out there, there are certain reasons why certain things are not put in place as easily that we have to consider. 
And so that is like one of the big things that I'm thinking about when it comes down to someone making materials on their own. And it's not to the extent of telling them to do something that's harming their body. It's just also thinking about something that could potentially harm them that someone may not be thinking about. So Mm -hmm. for example, right now, you may put hand sanitizer near a bedside, but that may not be safe for a demented patient. You may think about putting hand sanitizer there, period, and it may get taken. And so there are certain things to think about when you're talking about instituting these measures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I will wrap it up with saying, before you guys do anything, <laughs> hand hygiene-wise, um, it makes sense to check in with a hand hygiene expert. And Dr. Knighton has been um, interested in this area for since 2007. And, um, you know, professionally speaking, that's the, her major area of study for all of her professional, for her entire professional body of work. So, um, you know, when I invite experts to come on, you know, specifically a hand hygiene expert, um, it is with the idea and goal, like if somebody has questions or they're now thinking about something, that they would check in with the expert first. And um, I will be sure to, you know, link to how to reach out to you. Um, so that, you know, before anyone thinks anything, <laughs> let me say that, um, let's talk to Dr. Knighton first and see what she thinks about it. And she can um, probably, not probably, she could definitely save you hours to weeks to months to years of time, um, you know, letting you know, like, oh, this is what's already been done with that. That's a great idea. That probably won't be the best. And here's the research papers why. Um, you know, I'll definitely let her, um, you know, of course, take care of how that could work or whatnot. So um, thank you so much again. And um, I look forward to following your post over on Twitter. You're welcome. Thank you so much.